This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre was established out of a TAFE project back in 2001 in a little shop in Footscray. Since then, it's grown into a $13 million charity assisting over 5,000 people seeking asylum each year with a sizeable army of volunteers and staff all pitching in to make it easier for people to navigate the complicated process of finding a secure and safe home in Australia. It was all the brainchild of Con Karapanagiotidis and it's been through Con's energy, enthusiasm and compassion that the centre has played a leading role not just in the practicalities of helping those in need, but also in demanding a change to Australia's hardline asylum seeker regime. Just how the centre was founded and the personal struggles Con has dealt with as he endured racism, bullying and self-doubt has now been documented in his new memoir. It's called The Power of Hope or How Community, Love and Compassion Can Change Our World. And to talk more about it, Con joins me today in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This book deals with kind of dark themes, not just of asylum seekers and refugees seeking to come to Australia, but also your own story as well. But it is ultimately an uplifting book. It's all about hope and compassion, as the title suggests. Mm. What was behind your very deliberate decision to kind of frame it in that way? Yeah, I I wanted to be vulnerable and I wanted to be honest. And look, I've spent my life working with refugees, First Nations people, homeless people, people in the psych system. And every community I've worked with have been people where at the heart of it has been trauma. And at the heart of it has been grief and loss. And we live in a time where we shame people for their suffering. We silence people for their trauma. Um, we don't hear people's stories and we don't see the person behind the caricature, the stereotype and the label because it's much easier to not have to care about those people if we can just dehumanise them. So I wanted to write a story about hope and love and compassion and about what I've achieved but being really honest about everything I've done has come from a place of grief, trauma, loss, shame. And I hope by people reading that, they too could see that your suffering and your grief and your loss doesn't have to defeat you, it can actually make you. And that beautiful things can come out of that, like resilience and empathy. I really hoped men would pick it up in particular mm. um, because a lot of my book talks about masculinity. I know, I know a lot of people thought my book was just going to be about my work. I really wanted to go way beyond that. I wanted to talk about it at the heart. Um, the only way I could write that with any authenticity is to say, I've struggled all my life with self-esteem, mental health, body image, self-worth. Um, I've grown up in a traumatized home despite having really loving parents. Um, and I've still been able to do what I've done. Mm. And I kind of wanted people to n- not despair, but to know that there's always hope and that there is a power in our resilience and in coming together and caring about each other. And that's why I deliberately was exposed myself that much, to tell you the truth. It's a very deliberate decision. Was it a difficult thing to, to lay yourself bare yeah, in that way? It was terrifying. Yeah, my, my publisher kept trying to get me to edit things out, going, <laughs> you're sharing too much and you're being too vulnerable. Um, I wanted, I wrote the book really for myself, first of all. You know, first of all, like I wanted it to be a way of kind of shedding a lot of my own shame and hurt and... And as a man, being able to be that open and vulnerable, and it was really cathartic, it was really painful. I cried every day while I was writing mm. it. Uh, and it brought up a lot of things that made things roar again, but it also allowed me to forgive myself. And a lot of the times we don't forgive ourselves, we carry this hurt and then we reshape it into us as some sort of foul or unlovable, worthless person. And so part of it was allowing myself permission to heal and to move on. And it was scary because it really is my whole life. Like I've, I've left nothing out. Mm. Um, but part of that's quite liberating because it's almost like by putting it on paper and putting it out there, it can't hurt you anymore. It's like you're giving yourself permission to be accepted. Or even from the act of writing it, you're allowing yourself to be accepted. And I think that's a really powerful message because often the harshest critics are ourselves. And the worst thing we can start doing is having no expectations of ourselves and, and playing this soundtrack of trauma and hurt where we just think that, we're worthless. Mm. And where does that spiral into? It spirals into mental health crisis. It spirals into self-harm, into suicide, especially with men. And it spirals into a disconnect from community. At the heart of my book is, is this profound hope. It's quite a positive book. Yeah, It, it absolutely is. Despite being a really dark book. It's both. <laughs> and it's very deliberate. That is in the darkness there is light. And in the despair there is hope. And in the most toughest of times, what is born from that is our resilience and our deep, profound empathy at a time where we need radical empathy. So I feel the response I got from people, the hundreds of people that have written to me so far, has been really beautiful because it's it made people feel safe to share their really dark times. 
but also to tell me that the book's giving them hope to keep going, mm. which is pretty special. Absolutely. And and I know a lot of people are in awe of what you do and how you have the, the energy to do what you do through the ASRC or the incredible work the ASRC has managed to do since it was started in 2001. You share a really beautiful story at the start of the book yeah. where you have this doubt about, you know, whether you're really getting enough done, yeah. um, whether you're helping enough people, because of course there are those great stories, but there's also those that end in you know, tragedy with people not being granted yeah. asylum yeah. in Australia. But I wonder if you can share that story with us of when, yeah. when you left work so, that night. So the book, the book's peppered with lots of really beautiful moments from the history of the ASRC. And this one is my sister and I are leaving our Wednesday night legal clinic. It had been going about 17, 18 hours that day. And it had been a really tough night. You know, we were, had been helping lots of families, but I had spent most of the night telling people it was over and they had to go home. And, and I'm just walking out with my sister and going, what's the point? Are we making any difference? Feeling so defeated. And I hail a cab and cab driver picks me up and he looks at me and goes, you remember me? Um, and he goes, when I came here with nothing, it was you that helped me, my family. You and your friend brought furniture. They'd been sleeping on the floor. And you brought a whole truckload of furniture and, and housed our, our home. And then you fought to get asylum for our family. And now we're free and safe. And... And all the memories flashed back to me. And then when we get to my destination, get home, I go to pay him. He's like, please, the very least I can do is do this for you after you've given me my life. And I don't know the odds of coming across that man at that <laughs> moment in time, um, but I really needed that. I needed the universe to look after me. And it's in those little moments of lightness because the truth is, you know, you're working in a space of constant horror. Like at the moment, we're trying to get 102 children off Nauru. Mm. Um, who are facing life and death. We've rescued 31 children and their families at the ACC this year, but there's 102 kids that have stopped eating, sleeping, walking, talking. Um, and so every day we're facing into the worst of humanity, but every day the book talks a lot about how it also brings out the best in humanity. And that's the story I want us to be uplifted by because we can get so defeated by how dysfunctional our politics are, how bereft we are of moral leadership that we can give up. And the message of the book is that there is always hope and to never despair and to keep fighting for the community that we want. You spent a, a lot of time before founding the ASRC yeah. um, volunteering for a bunch of different yeah. different ch charities from kind of homelessness charities to, to, to those supporting prostitutes and, and yeah. um, victims of, um, of, of sexual abuse yeah. as well. Um, and at the Royal Children's Hospital. So yeah. you poured yourself into all these different endeavours. How was it that the ASRC was formed and, and, and how did that become, I guess, your, your chief project and, yeah. and vocation? So from 18 to 28, I volunteered in about two dozen different charities. And I talk about in a book how it really was a crossroads moment at 18 of, of feeling so worthless that I wanted to die. And, but knowing I had all this love in me and I wanted to give it. So I just started volunteering and found a place where I made sense. Uh, at 28... Uh, the ACC just kind of came about by chance. You know, it had been a really hard time in my life. The year before, my uh, my father had suddenly died. So I lost my dad at 27. And I actually want to acknowledge it's my dad's, it's the 18th anniversary today of my father passing. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it uh, makes my heart so heavy. And, and in that really moment of despair, I was in a real crossroads again. And I happened to be teaching a, a group of students at a TAFE. And on the side, I'd been providing some free torture and trauma counselling to young men around my age who'd been tortured by their governments in their country for one in the democracy we get to have right here in this moment. And my students were struggling to find a placement. They had to go out and do a practical placement for class and no one would take them on for a day a week, for eight weeks. And I knew people seeking asylum were going hungry. And I said to them, how about we start our own little food bank, our own little charity to help refugees? And they thought I was taking a piss. I'm like, well, why can't we change the world? Why can't we just have a go and do this? Mm. And eight weeks from the day, the ACC was born. Um, with a few hundred dollars, furniture from my mum's, they helped my friend Pablo, gave me this little shop rent free. And really, why did I choose this? I suppose because of everything I've done in my life, the story of the refugee resonates more than anything else with me. As in my grandparents were refugees, my parents were immigrants, we are a nation that is an indigenous nation and a multicultural one. And I understand that I've just won the lottery of time and place. And every time a refugee walks through that door, I think how easily it could be my grandparents or how easily it could be my parents. And I understand the fragility of life and of freedom and, of, and the preciousness of family and the heroism of refugees. And I want to spend the rest of my life honouring that, honouring that legacy. I think a lot of people concerned about this issue of, of the way that Australia treats asylum seekers and refugees and the enormous flows of people out of countries such as Syria at the moment that we're seeing would despair but not really know how 
they can help themselves. They might see the, the, the problem as too enormous, too difficult to affect policy change. When you started the ASRC and started being visited by people with, you know, very various and yeah. complex needs, some legal, some medical, some people just needing yeah. food and, and a place to live, how did you manage that without just getting completely overwhelmed? Uh, yeah, because I'm 28 at the time. I have no idea what I'm doing. But all I saw was, I, when I started, I had a very simple idea. Uh, I wanted to be the best of what I saw as a volunteer for the last 10 years and reject the worst of what I saw. So it was like, we will turn no one away. We will see the whole person. We will never take money from the federal government, which we haven't done in mm. 17 years. We'll be independent. And it basically was just, so we start with the food, then people turn up going, I need a lawyer. I'm like, I'm a lawyer. I just started a legal service. People turned up going um, with their sick children going, no hospital would treat us. And I just thought, bugger this. I took a student on placement and started a health service. I just kept responding. And, you know, and over the years, there's been 10, of thousands of people that have donated to make the ACC possible, thousands of people who have worked as volunteers or staff, so it's not just me on my own, but at the heart of how every day, we, for the first five years, we almost went under every week, you know, and people thought this will never work, mm. and I had a very simple idea, which is the greatest risk is to not try, the greatest risk is to not care. So every time, and you know, I talk about my first experience in the high court, like, I, <laughs> That's had, an no, amazing story. I had no idea what I was doing. But the greatest thing we can, the greatest risk to humanity is to be apathetic and to not put yourself on the line. So every time I kept starting a new program, a new service, I honestly had no idea whether it was going to work. But all I knew was there was a person in need and I had the power to do something. And the worst thing you can do, the great failure is to not try. Mm. And every time I tried, it actually just led to greater success and greater success. And the reason the ACC works is because most Australians are good and most people are decent. And what the ACC offers is the leadership that is lacking in our politicians. That is, do good, be good, welcome people, live your values. Imagine if we had political leaders actually leading that way saying most of us are decent, we can welcome our fair share and we can treat people with humanity. Instead of having a Prime Minister on the weekend talking about family values mm. while he locks up 102 children for the last five years, locks up men on manners from their families, that's not fair. Values are the things that you give to everyone, not the ones, things you just give to the people you think deserve it. That's called hypocrisy and self-interest. Mm. So um, at all times I had no idea if this was going to work. But all I knew was the, the greatest risk was not helping, which meant these people could die. So anything short of that was a, a risk worth taking, yeah? It, we're speaking with Con Karapanaji Atidas, the founder and CEO of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, all about his brand's new memoir. And it's interesting in, in there you mentioned apathy. And yeah. there's this idea in the book, which, which really resonates with me, that the government relies on our apathy, oh, relies on our indifference so to get much. away with this. And if, if we don't stand for it, then suddenly... So they have much. a problem. Oh, so much. Look, they, they, the government relies, this, this government relies on us feeling overwhelmed, cynical, and just beaten down by just the sheer dysfunction of what we're seeing. That is, whether it's refugees, whether it's treaty with First Nations people, whether it's actual malvolence against women. Now, talk about all these issues, whether it's acting on climate change, uh, the way they, they, they fought tooth and nail to stop marriage equality. But that happened from the will of the people. Mm. We are on the right side of history. We are on the right side of truth. And what it takes right now is for us not to give up because that's what these bastards are relying on, that we just get beaten down and we despair and we stop fighting. And when I think about, you know, the ASSC and people told me, you know, what a ridiculous idea running a charity without government funding, relying on volunteers. Well, it's now helped 17,000 people. It's saved the lives of thousands of people. It's rescued dozens of children off Nauru this year and their families. All of that shouldn't be possible, should it? You know, without any support from governing, yet it works because, in fact, our voice is powerful, our communities are strong, these people work for us, not the other way around, and all we need to do is start holding them accountable. That is, do what is right or we're going to vote you out. And I can't wait to see Peter Dutton voted out, yeah? Mm. You? <laughs> There's many He's of us who can't wait for that. cannot wait for that man, that man to be gone. But at the heart of it, it's not just individuals, it's about the politics that fail to actually... Um, represent us all you know where is the leadership for refugees indigenous people the lgbtiq community people with disabilities the poor we can't even raise the rate of new start allowance while hundreds of thousands are in poverty why can't we have a country for all and we're constantly told it, the time is not now you know it's not now to raise the rate or act on violence against women or close the pay gap or have quotas for women or bring them here and i'm telling you the time is now we want moral leadership we want political leadership that brings us all to the table so rather than you know building tougher borders or higher walls we talk about building longer tables 
where we can all sit together and share in that promise of democracy and equality and inclusion and welcome. There are times um, in your book or instances where it sounds like you maybe doubted the goodwill of people out mm-hmm. there in Australia to mm-hmm. come to the aid of mm-hmm. the Asylum Seeker yeah. Resource Centre, yeah. to donate food, to yeah. bring in yeah. things for asylum seekers who needed help. And also there's a story you share of, of being in Brisbane at a hospital yeah. when doctors refused to return yeah. a one-year-old who'd been burned yeah. to Nauru and really yeah. took, a, took a stand. And in that instance, people came, donated food, flooded the hospital. Yeah. Does it, does it surprise you still when you see that level of, of goodwill from people when, when we might feel lonely yeah. and isolated sometimes? A couple of months ago, this, this is after the, it's a great question, after the book was published, a couple of months ago, we were, we were low on food, we needed blankets and coats, and so I went out onto Twitter and Facebook and said, I'm, an, I'm opening up the ACC on a Sunday for five hours, the back garage, please bring food and blankets. Part of me was like people will respond and then part of me was really anxious going, what if no one responds? Because mm. it's in those moments that keep you going, knowing that you're not alone. 2,000 people turn up in five hours, $150,000 worth of food. I had people that had driven from Bendigo, Ballarat, Castlemaine, Macedon Rangers, uh, someone from Port Macquarie. I had hundreds of families, former refugees I'd helped going, it's my turn to give back. I had people just weeping because I was so overwhelmed by the sight of 2,000 people streaming in. And it's in those moments, the sense of joy people had because imagine if we had that. It's the same as if the boats were turning up on St Kilda Beach and South Melbourne Beach. I'm telling you now, most Australians would be rushing out there with blankets, with food and dragging people out of the ocean because most people are decent. But if you have political leadership that tells us, be afraid, be afraid, that appeals to the worst in us, what a surprise we get the worst of us. People respond to only two things, fear and values. And so what I keep trying to go back to and what the ACC stands for is returning to the core for values. That is, lead with your values, compassion, love, community that I talk about all through my book, The Power of Hope. And that's the power of what we're able to do together. So yeah, there's always a little bit of anxiety about what if if people have given up. And then those moments when people rally, yeah, you need that because it is hard every day. Me and my incredible staff and volunteers, every day you feel defeated. Every day you feel like you're losing because there's always more people you want to help. There's always more children you want to rescue off Nauru. You want to get the men off manners. And you're constantly feeling like you're failing because it's a David and Goliath battle. Mm. But we can be Goliath if the community stands with us. It's interesting as well that the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre was established in 2001 and and kind of thinking about those two um, things that people respond to in terms of values and fear. 2001 was the year that, of course, the Tampa kind of standoff um, which happened and very shortly after that was September 11 when two Mm. planes crashed into the Twin Towers and it felt like at that time suddenly the refugees issue got conflated with security. Suddenly they were a threat. They weren't people to be helped. And all those things, these things kind of happened in 2001. And I know Julian Burnside's talked about Mm. his involvement in the Tampa case being his kind of awakening on this issue and is surprised that still after all these years, he's still having to fight that fight. He thought it might go away quickly after winning that case, but it hasn't. It's a great point. It was such a pivotal year and the timing of it was amazing. Like the ASSC opens on the 8th of June. The next month we have the Tampa where the government's refusing to allow 354 people who are rescued by a Norwegian ship from landing in Australia. And we never recovered from that. You know, we will decide who comes to this country Mm. and the manner in which they come. September 11th happens the next month. I'm not saying this is Howard going, I'm not saying these people are terrorists on this boat, but I can't promise you that they're not. And this country never recovered from that. But what was also interesting, the story that's untold that I talk about in the book, is that we went from having a couple of people dropping off food and donations and volunteering to hundreds of people. And when the Tampa was happening and when September 11th happened and there was this war on refugees suddenly, we just got overwhelmed with hundreds of people streaming in going, I can't keep screaming at the TV. I feel so ashamed of what's being done to refugees. Here's 50 bucks. How do I volunteer? Tomorrow night, we've got our volunteer night, 450 people coming, booked out weeks ago. And that's been going strong for 17 years. So that was both one of the darkest years of our history in the the last 50 years that we haven't recovered from, but also was a catalyst for an amazing movement that you see across this country now, not just at the ACC, but from rural Australians for refugees to mums for refugees. You're seeing this amazing grassroots movement movement of people standing up for our values and welcoming refugees. Yet still at the federal level, we have virtually a bipartisan <sighs> policy yeah. on offshore yeah, detention. And do. we seem to have reached this kind of um, endless cycle of, of, of rhetoric around the logic of boat yeah. turnbacks and mandatory yeah. detention that, you know, we need to turn them around because we don't want people dying yeah. at sea. And that kind of moralising, which doesn't stack up logically, no. 
Um, yet that's where we've got to. We have the two major parties yeah. agreeing yeah. on that sentiment. We're only here because we have bipartisan support. And the great trick, especially of the right, is its ability to lie to us. So the myth of it's about saving lives, it's like you can't claim to save lives while you allow 15 people to die in offshore detention centres. You can't claim to care about the sanctity of life while you allow children to fall into a deep coma, into permanent trauma they'll never recover from. You can't care, claim to care about life when you've got hundreds of men on Manus Island on a weekly basis self-harming. Um, the reality is when they hear the words turn back the boat, all they're actually talking about are human beings. That is, turn back people to die somewhere else. Turn back people to drown somewhere else. And what's missing from this government is any leadership. In fact, the conversation should be about how do we provide safe passage like Malcolm Fraser did you know, as Prime Minister, how do we save more lives? How do we build a proper regional framework? And that when people are here, the Peter Dunn at the moment is about to cut off thousands of people off all income support from pregnant women to families to single parents to force them into destitution. So every time you hear them talking about saving lives, all they mean is die somewhere else. That's all they mean, be out of sight and out of mind. And the reason Australia won't take up New Zealand's offer to take the refugees from Nauru and Manus is they want them to rot. They want them to break. They want to go to the next election and go, we are so morally depraved that we will do anything to stay in power. And who they're appealing to are to the racists in this country, are to the white supremacists in this country, are to the One Nation supporters of this country. But they are a fringe. The majority of Australians are not like that. But if we keep feeding that, we're going to grow that. As you see throughout Europe, as you see with Brit Exit, as you see with Trump, we have two ways of going. One is we lead with values and community and inclusiveness and equality. Or the other one is we keep banging that drumbeat of bigotry, white supremacy and racism. And look what, look what comes of that. Just mm. hate begets hate begets hate. And we can't do that anymore. We are sick and tired of the politics of hate. Look what's happened recently, the vilification of Muslims, language like the final solution being used, white supremacists, neo-Nazis being put onto mainstream television. We can't tolerate this. This is unacceptable. But unless we call it, name it and fight it, it will keep growing and growing and growing. And we have to say enough. This is not who we are. And we want better than this for Indigenous people, for refugees, for our whole community. Conan Karapanajia here. This is my guest. We're talking all about his new memoir, The Power of Hope, or how community love and compassion can change the world. And Con, of course, is also the founder and CEO of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. And one of the things the government's attempted to do on this issue is is prevent um, or limit reporting on yeah. what the camps are actually like, or the prisons yeah. are actually like in, yeah. in Manus and Nauru. You did go there, yeah. though. I should say as well, there's the incredible efforts of people like Behruz Bachani, who's enlightening us all about the Beruz true state of affairs there. And you check out his book. And his no amazing friends book. The, no friends but the mountains. And Beruz is extraordinary. People like Beruz, Aziz, Walid, they're the real heroes. Those extraordinary heroes are those extraordinary men on Manus Island. And yeah, I talk about in the book how I paid a smuggler and got smuggled onto Manus Island. And this was at the time where they cut off water, food, electricity, medicine. And you saw recently a New Zealand re reporter when I had a Pacific Forum um, on Nauru got arrested for interviewing mm. refugees. I mean, the reality is our government knows that if the media were actually allowed into these detention centres and were documenting the comatose children, the men self-harming, the Australian public would be so revolted and repulsed by what they're seeing, it would actually bring about drastic policy change because people would be like, oh my God, this is what you're actually doing to human beings. And when I was there on Manus, um, um, it is worse than what you read about like it was really shocking to see men digging out of the ground because they'd cut off all water men covered in rashes men collapsing in front of you because they had no medicine and sitting and going my australian government is starving these refugees and yet these men were so extraordinary they hadn't broken they were working together they insisted on making us tea and giving us food and sitting there like family I mean, we need people like Beirut. We need people like Aziz. Our country would be richer for these people. And they, there are 610 men still on Manus Island right now. And they are living in squalor without any mental health care, without any medical care, without any future. And we cannot forget about these men. It is a catastrophe. In fact, the adult population on Manus has the highest rates of mental illness of any adult population in any immigration detention centre seen in the world. That's how catastrophic it is. We are destroying these human beings. And for what? And for who? We'd be lucky to have these people and we need to bring these men to safety. 
Mm. There's a line in your book um, where you say, at times um, on this issue, we've been far too reactive instead of proactive mm. with our vision for what an alternative human and compassionate approach should look like with regard to, to refugees yeah. and asylum seekers. What do you mean like that? I wonder, wonder if you can flesh what that I out What I mean a bit. by that is we need to stop just attacking what is wrong mm. and we need to be building the alternative. So by, by that I mean one example of the alternative is the ACC. That is, people are here, let's show that a model of community settlement and integration works, which is what we do. Uh, in October, I'm going to Thailand for a week to meet with all the, the leaders of the refugee sector in, in Asia. Let's go and learn from what is happening in the Asia-Pacific region and ask them, how can we work together to build safe passage and build regional frameworks? We're out there through our right track work as the ASRC going out to training up thousands of people in how to shift the conversation. So instead of appealing to you know myth-busting and economics and facts, it doesn't shift people. We're training up thousands of people of how do we talk about refugees from a values point of view. That mm. is, we're not talking about boats, we're talking about people. We're not talking about turnbacks, we're talking about saving lives and we're talking about people who share our values. So what I mean is, for too long, unintentionally, we're focused on just going, well, if we can just myth bust or if we can just sit there attacking people for not being perfect and purist on an issue, we're somehow going to get change. Or if we sit there and just label people racist and bigots, we're going to get the best out of people. And all we do is alienate people further. So we need to be talking in a way that brings people with us, that appeals to the values in people, that shows practically how it works, that gets people into employment and education. As unfair as it should be, because no one asks me or you to be exceptional, to be safe or free, but we know the more refugees and immigrants integrate and contribute to a country, the more they're humanized and welcomed and that fear dissipates so we need to build that that's the reality of it we need to build an actual regional framework and work with people in asia because that's where most are coming from so that's what i mean build the alternative show it can work shift the conversation reframe it around values just like you saw happen with things like marriage equality mm. who thought that would have been possible 20 years ago and at the heart of that was telling people we're not asking you to reject your values we're asking you to affirm your values. That is the values of love, of fairness, of equality. Imagine if we just started talking about refugees that way all the time. And that's what we're trying to do at the moment. And that's what I mean. We've got to stop attacking. It's not to say we don't need to do that. But I mean, if you spend all your energy just on attacking, then the reality is political leaders sit there and go, well, what's the alternative? And when people do something right, even though they might not be perfect, if we're not acknowledging that and encouraging them to do more because they're not perfect on every issue, guess what happens? They don't bother at all. Mm. So we have to stop, you know, sometimes in the left we get so caught up in who's the most purest and who's keeping it real that we end up being our worst enemy. It's interesting because that can easily get shot down yeah. by, by yeah. conservative commentators yeah. or by politicians because yeah. it's simply not workable. Yeah. You know, we've, we've tried that. It's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why it's about trying to say, here's how we take more refugees. Here's how we provide safe passage. Here's how these people are a benefit to our country. So it's about trying to show the positive because the reality is we know this. Refugees do share our values. Refugees are the most entrepreneurial. Refugees do contribute to this country. Refugees commit less crime than other people. And we know these are the facts. But the more and more we can build that community, like we have historically, and the more and more we can show that there are humane alternatives the more and more we're going to be able to shift the public. But that's the big challenge. How do we shift the public so it doesn't just change a change of government? Like a change of government will see some improvement on refugee policy, mm. but it'll be fragile because until we shift the Australian public as a whole, all it takes is a change of government for people to flip back the other way. Just like we see now, we closed Manus and Nauru at New York of the ASRC. It's back. We got rid of temporary protection visas. They're back. You know, we, we got people income support. It's been cut off now. So it's, some of it feels so heartbreaking because mm. fights we had won, we're now losing again. And at the heart of that is because we haven't brought the public with us. And we just have to do that. As unfair as it might be, that's the reality. If we do not bring the public with us, we're never going to get durable policy change that results in sustainable, humane and fair refugee policy, are we? If we're a minority. We're not. It's hard to say that's right. Yeah, and of course, we can't do it on our own. We need mm. one political party to be brave enough to actually lead because it's also ridiculous to expect we're going to get there without any major party actually publicly willing to do that. And that's why we need the ALP to actually stand up um, and actually take some leadership. And we know there are people in there who And there are care. some great people in there who actually care, but we need to actually see that from short and onwards. Mm. We actually need to see that being visible and vocal. Because behind closed doors, it's wonderful to hear what is, you know, some of the promised changes. But we need to start seeing that publicly a lot more than we are. 
because at the end of the day, otherwise people go, well, both parties are the same and we continue down this downward spiral because the government's like, well, there's no one that's going to hold us to account. So we can just keep doing this and doing this and doing this. And so there's gradual shift and we're putting a lot of our energy in working with the independents, with the ALP, with the Greens going, we want a humane alternative and we're hopeful, but we need much more leadership because clearly at the moment, at the heart of it, we still have bipartisanship in this awful policy. Mm. Having um, collected all, all your, your thoughts and ideals and, and your personal struggles yeah. as well in this book, does it make you feel, having kind of, I guess, let go of some of that baggage yeah. feel stronger and more more clear in your mind than ever about what the ASRC is doing and what we as a community can do yeah. on this issue? Yeah, it does. It does. I think it's kind of a, an incredible experience being able to put it all down on paper and being able to kind of see it all from the beginning to where it is now. And really at the heart of it now is about how do we how do we build durable attitude change, durable social change. I'm really interested as an organization around what is our role in the Asia Pacific region? Like mm. as in, we are dealing with a global issue and for too long, we're just thinking about our own backyard rather than going, well, where are people actually coming from? And why are people fleeing in the first place? And how do we stop creating refugees to begin with? So it's really got me thinking a bigger picture as well about how do we stop creating refugees in the first place? And when refugees are on that journey, how do we ensure people aren't getting onto boats because there are safe pathways? And while people are waiting, how do we make sure those people have dignity and human rights and security? So it has got me thinking with greater ambition. Mm. While making sure we keep caring for the people here, how do we actually tackle the root cause of what is going on? and tackle what happens to people when they flee because that's where the journey actually begins. We're dealing with the last part of it and I just feel like we need to start going back to its roots as well. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Con. My it's it's affirming hearing <laughs> hearing you speak um, as, as always and congratulations on the book. Congratulations on everything you've managed to achieve yeah. so far at the ASRC, which is an amazing organisation. And thanks for your support. And if people would love to get involved, there are a couple of things. One, um, our volunteer night is booked out, but in a couple of weeks there'll be vacancies coming up on the ASRC website, so check it out. Two, we've got our September appeal to free the kids off Nauru, so if you'd love to chip in, go to ASRC.org.au and fund the only organisation that's actually working with the families. We're it, along with our legal partners. That would be great. And three, um, sign the petitions around kids off Nauru. Um, go and visit your local member of parliament with a group of friends or your church or your union or your workplace or your footy club and know that your voice is powerful. I can't stress the importance of holding your local member of parliament to account and saying to them, from a values point of view, where do you stand in locking up children? Mm. Where do you stand in indefinitely locking up men on manners? Where do you stand in ensuring that people when they're seeking asylum have the basic right to work and healthcare and basic support and a fair go? I can't stress unless we demand better from our leaders, we're never going to get it. So we need to lead with love, hope, passion, fairness, and vision. And we need to be idealistic because we cannot be that which we do not see. We cannot be that which we do not dream and believe in. So I need everyone to rally. Now is a time to lead with your heart, lead with your love, and lead with your voice. It's a beautiful note to end on, Con. Thank thanks you. so much for joining us My today. Pleasure. Thanks for having on me. On Triple R. Absolute pleasure. And you can get a copy of Con's new memoir, The Power of Hope or How Community Love and Compassion Can Change the World, by Con Karapanagiotidis, the founder and CEO of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. His book is out through Harper Collins. The, uh, the final last Friday between Collingwood and Richmond brought a huge amount of interest from longtime fans as people flooded to the MCG to watch the so called Battle of Hoddle Street. Part of the excitement was about the long history between these clubs from neighbouring suburbs, both of which were established in the late 19th century and have fought out many battles since. But of course, these inner city suburbs have undergone drastic change over the years with gentrification, pushing so-called working class people out and really challenging the blue collar identity that these clubs have been built on. So why do people continue to cling onto these suburban football club loyalties, even when their connection to a particular suburb might not be all that strong? Who better to talk about this than with Associate Professor David Nichols from the University of Melbourne. He joins us, as he does monthly, on the show this morning. How are you going? Good, thanks, Dylan. How are you? I'm pretty well, thanks. Collingwood uh, won, so I'm yeah. doing... I'm on cloud yeah, nine. Collingwood. Okay, good. That's right. I'm very happy for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but we were chatting before today, um, you know, planning for this segment as we do each month, and uh, I didn't realise you have kind of a strong Richmond affiliation in your family. I have a strong Collingwood affiliation, but I didn't really know why that was do you have a sense of, of why that sort of you know what connection? i mean this is like a lot of these things that like family um uh law l-o-r-e law 
Uh, I always thought it was because my grandfather was a, and I know I told this to you last week and I believed it when I said it, my grandfather was a Paran supporter. He grew up in, in that area, you know, 100 years, more than 100 years ago. And, um, and Paran, as I understood it, merged in some way with Richmond. Well, that may have happened, but I can't find any evidence of that, you know, in, in my... Um, I did some research over the over the weekend just to just establish the truth of that or, and or when it happened. Uh, but in any case, it was my grandfather's thing uh, to be a Richmond supporter. He um, he passed that on to his sons, his two sons. And, I mean, the, the hilarious thing, just like my grandfather was, I mean, he was kind of a bit of a loser. Um, and he, he switched allegiance because Richmond weren't winning. He switched allegiance in the, in the 60s to St Kilda because really? St Kilda were doing so well. Wow. And he never what saw St Kilda. What a terrible choice. I know, it was the worst thing. It's yeah. the worst thing he could have done. I mean, it kind of sums up his life. <laughs> so, uh, but in any case, uh, as you say, yes, um, unless I'm mistaken, and I might be because, I mean, between you and me, me and football, I'm, you know, I have an interest in lots of things. Mm. I'm interested in everything. I'm interested in, in the culture, but I don't, I don't care. <laughs> no. But um, but if you know, if pressed by a, you know a, a taxi driver or um, you know a radio announcer, I will say that I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Richmond supporter, um, and I you know will very occasionally go to go to games and I will very occasionally enjoy them. But but there are people in my family who are passionate for Richmond, and it, it is something that I mean it fascinates me. I mean I think it's. It's not quite like political allegiance, although political allegiance... There are some similarities for a lot of people, I think. It's like, you know, I vote like my, parent, my parents voted. Um, and, you know, the, the, the football thing is in many cases the same. And that, that goes... That ties into, um, I think, what, what, what we were going to talk about today, which is that, that idea of how these, how these allegiances sustain mm. across generations, particularly, uh, but also the meaning of a, of a football allegiance... Uh, considering that, as you say, the the most of the football teams still, I think, I haven't tallied that up, but I think this is still true, are named after what we now consider to be inner, inner city suburbs of Melbourne because they were the only suburbs of Melbourne pretty mm. much in, um, with a few exceptions, um, in the 1880s, 1890s. Uh, and so it was it was a kind of, you know, a local, local allegiances that were very strong. And now we have these allegiances, but they're not, geographically tied for most of us. It's an interesting thing, though, because, I, I mean, I don't know how this compares to other sports around the world, but I'd imagine that it's it's pretty rare to have a football code with as much money in it as the AFL has. And these suburbs in Melbourne that have some of the largest supporter bases, even though it's been a national competition for quite a long time, mm. but those really strong suburban football club loyalties have remained and even grown stronger. That's right. I mean, it's sort of, it's origins. And I, I guess people know them mainly by, you know, tigers, you know, wh- whatever, you know, you, you magpies. You talk about them in terms of, of that, those nicknames, uh, at least as much as you talk about them in terms mm. of their, their allegiances. And they, you know, in, in many instances, those teams don't train there. They certainly don't come from there. I was, um, you know, looking into this further, I, I was you know, reminded of really this has been an ongoing process for probably my entire lifetime. It's only people, you know, probably of my father's generation who who would remember um, a time when the the teams were... It was really kind of a, uh, a local team thing that was also a kind of, you know, local battleground kind of thing as mm. well. And that plays out not just in... Um, Aussie rules football, not just in, you know, we get confusing. Uh, we, we're talking about the, the VFL before, what is it, 1991? When did VFL become AFL? Yeah, around, about, then, around about there, I think 1990 maybe. And then the VFA became the VFL. Mm, so that's that, right. You know, it's I mean, kind of confusing. That is, <laughs> that is so stupid. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, so there was, a, there was a time when it'd be like, you know, uh, well, actually, you probably could feel like you were taking your life in your hands a little bit like travelling mm. to some away game somewhere, you know, there, there probably were that kind... There, there was a bit of that, you know. And there was that um, that severe um, hostility towards, you know, you know, how, how dare you uh, come from Fitzroy to Geelong? I don't even know where Fitzroy is, you know. Why would I, <laughs> I don't even know what it looks like. Why would I, you know... Uh, you know, you, you do talk... You talk to people from... Of that era and they... Those... Places that we now think of as like half an hour's drive away from each other, were, you know, were like you know, the difference between Mars and the Moon. You mm. know, it, it made it was um, 
you know, people didn't travel as much uh, generally, but they also didn't travel as much within the city. They didn't have reason to go from, from place to place within the city. I, I wonder as well about how much it's, it is kind of having a rivalry with, with, with a place that's, that's other than your own, a, a suburb or a city that's other than your own, as much as it's, as it's kind of something that's built up over time and there's kind of a legend that surrounds a rivalry. Because I was looking into the Collingwood-Richmond rivalry and, and there was apparently a player who defected to Richmond after the war. He was a Collingwood player, came back and then played for Richmond and that was yeah. apparently one of the the main kind of, um, you know, the genesis in some way of this strong rivalry where people didn't really change teams so much and that kind of solidified what I guess was already a somewhat antagonistic or, or you know, um, oppositional relationship between those two suburbs. But there are these things that happen throughout time that build it up in the collective memory yeah. in a way. Yeah, I, I think... Um I hope that one day uh, there's a biopic about Ron Brassie. I hope one day there's a movie about Ron Brassie. And well, you could make it. I, I could certainly write that screen. <laughs> and I'd write it very much in that, in that kind of, you know, Melbourne urban historical, um, <laughs> um, you know, gentrification, I'm not sure, you know, gentrification, or, you know, post-industrial, you know, moving into post-industrial era, um, all of that kind of stuff. Because one of the things that Brassie did... Um, sort of not, he didn't do it on purpose, but one of the things that, that, that occurred um, uh, around Brassie was because there were so many expectations about him as a player, <clears throat> there was a rule instituted that meant that he could be um, allowed to play for Melbourne because that was his father's team. His father was a notable um, player who uh, died in the Second World War and Ron Brassie was allowed to play for Melbourne because there was a, you know, pat patriality, uh, mm. which had never happened before. P previously, I can't remember where he would have ended up, but he, you know, I think he, did he grow up in Castlemaine or something? Um, so that he was he was in some kind of zone for another team. I can't remember what it was. But um, so there's, so Barassi, I mean, not just for that, and also because he's, he's sort of the first real <clears throat> sort of big league um you know, mega megastar coach as well, who then goes goes to you know um, moves over to another team as a coach, uh, and you know with big money involved. So there's he's part of you know first of all there's that there's that element whereby he's he's perhaps one of the first players who is not actually from the the place that mm. he he plays for or its you know zoned area um, catchment area. Um, but then he's also, you know, notably someone who um, goes goes to another team entirely, and you know, and I'm sure that's not the first time that happened. But it was the first, you know, it was a famous incident. So those kinds of things, which are, you know, in some ways they've got nothing to do with um, the changing landscape of Melbourne and the expansion of Melbourne and and so on. It has more to do with the professionalisation of you know that's Australian right. rules football uh, and and the and the move from you know amateur. Um, to to professional and you know now we we'd barely expect any of any players you know it would be notable wouldn't it if a player comes from my god he plays for uh, Carlton but he's and he's from Carlton who would have thought it yeah I mean the father son thing I guess still makes it. Um, possible and likely in some scenarios that at least the first time a player is drafted means they'll go to the the team that their father played for but then if they're not that good they'll get they'll get moved on pretty quickly or their mother. Or the team their that's mother right. played well, that's for. That's right. That, yeah. that which is which is possible now, which is great. Yeah. What well, is it? It is a father daughter thing as well. That that exists sure. in the AFLW. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but you know the other thing that I would say, like you you mentioned gentrification. I mean that is obviously a big part of it, and uh, um, the a part of the way that we see the world. You know, in the twenty first century, or our world, the Melbourne world in the twenty first century, and maybe the world more more generally. But I think it's also it's just expansion. It's just mm. expansion of the city, which is you know, and the city has expanded over the. Um, you know, the century plus that it's it's existed, and we have. Um, so um, there was that article in the, um, the Age last week, was it? Mm. That um, talks about you know corridors, and you see that a lot in the way that, um, notably, it's and this is you know it reflects in football allegiance to some degree, but it's also just a, a reality that people kind of leapfrog, you know, out along the railway line um, as they grow up and um, buy a house of their own, you know, in the days when that used to happen um, more commonly. So they would, they'd move out further out, uh, but, but in a kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a line going, you know, away from the city. So, so you do have, and that the, the article in the age talked about that, that there's a, 
um, a scenario where uh, people, for instance, uh, I guess Collingwood supporters, you know, have, there's a high concentration of them in Greensboro mm. and that kind of thing because they go out uh, up the railway line. That's right. Probably also go out along the roads as well. But on a map, you can just see it kind of branching off in that direction, kind of out from from Collingwood, which is really interesting. Isn't that? Um, isn't it? It's kind of it's kind of weird, but it kind of makes sense. Joe Hinchcliffe was the author of that article, so that's. Um, yeah, that's that I find uh, fascinating. It's also, I mean, it's also it's not just football allegiance, but it shows up in football allegiance. Mm. But yeah, and which also I guess indicates that that weird thing of um, um, you support what your parents supported. That's right. Why? <laughs> I don't know, but I do. <laughs> Speaking with Associate Professor Dave Nichols all about football loyalties and allegiances, I guess, um, you know, given the massive changes that have happened in some of the suburbs um, that do uh, boast some of the biggest teams in the AFL, such as Collingwood, Richmond and others as well. And, uh, I mean, localism still exists for football at, at the level of the VFL and, and local um, leagues and that sort of thing in country towns. The football club's mm. often a real kind of hub of mm. activity. And I know you've done work on Port Melbourne in the past and, and I guess the kind of mythology surrounding that ground when it was under threat of development. That's right. The, um, uh, when Matthew Guy was planning minister, uh, there was a... You know, I mean, I, I suspect, looking back, I suspect they were just running it up the flagpole to see what, you know, um, if anybody saluted and nobody did, um, the notion of turning the, the Port Melbourne ground into a just a more general recreation reserve. Mm. So they weren't going to demolish it necessarily or anything, but they were um, kind of uh, taking it out of that, um, you know, that sacred uh, role of... Um, <laughs> just being Port Melbourne just, football ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yes. So um, I think it was also a cricket ground, but yes, exactly. So, um, and the, the, it's, I mean, in Port Melbourne, that's a, that is, it is fascinating. It's a fascinating place in so many ways to look particularly at gentrification. So we go back to the gentrification thing um, because there are so few people who, um, you know, there are so many people, sorry, who grew up in Port Melbourne who, for whatever reason, left the area and now couldn't buy back, you know, in a, in a million years yeah. and want to, I think, in many ways and miss it a lot, miss that, you know, as, as people do often tend to sentimentalise their uh, time of, um, you know, um, you know, deprivation, poverty and, 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 <laughs> and misery. Um, uh, and, geez, why not? Uh, <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> but um, it is. It comes down to those questions of like of loyalty and you know and and understanding the history of an area and that's the that's the beef that a lot of people in Port Melbourne had. A lot of sort of established people in Port Melbourne or people who had a long-standing, lifelong allegiance to Port Melbourne Football Club, they had a beef with the newbies who they thought didn't necessarily, you know, understand the history. They didn't have those kinds of, you know, life milestones about, you know, remember when. You know, I mean, Port Melbourne, apart from anything else, was uh, well known for being the most violent team in the world. That's right. Um, but um, you know, that's not that's not the only the only history. I mean, there's there's a lot of other things that Port Melbourne did. And Port Melbourne, poor old Port Melbourne, you know, just just missed out on becoming a um, an AFL, you know, team. I mean, it was, and it's always been a, a strong team, almost always been a strong team in the in the. Uh, what we now know as the VFL. So it's, um, you know, it, it, it has a really important role and it's also, um, you know, it's, I think for a lot of people in that area, it's like a, it's a twin, you know, and you, you, you support Port Melbourne when you go to a VFL game, you support South Melbourne, you know, um, nationally. Mm, swans. So, so there's that kind of, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, there's those kinds of um, those kinds of things that allow you to, to maintain, if particularly if you live in the area, but even if you don't, if you just if you grew up in the area, allow you to maintain a very strong sense of place through those, um, you know that that particular brand of fandom. How much did the, those concerns of locals around what might happen to that ground play into the fact that it wasn't eventually kind of developed or, or changed? Um. I mean, what was it? A really strong kind of movement. To, there was a to lot of unhappiness, uh, and I don't think. I, look, I'd be very, very surprised if uh, the city of Port Phillip would have, would have allowed that to, mm. to happen to the degree that the city of Port Phillip had the, um, you know, could could prevent that. Um, I think that 
you know, like a lot of, I mean, it's a, it's a tough one because all of so many of the decisions that were made in that particular area. Let's, you know, we're going to talk about that particular time and place. I mean, there were so many um, weird decisions made on an ad hoc basis about um, what was going to change in that particular part of the world uh, in whenever that was, twenty twelve or whatever. Uh, that um, you know, I think a lot of it was just kind of ambit claims that were going to have to be. Um, uh, wheel back in various ways, so no, that's a that's that's too hard. I think that this is one of the things that's that is really interesting, though. I mean, there there are people with this kind of uh, local allegiance, but what are they? Uh, you know, they're not necessarily local. Mm. So, and you might. I mean, I I hope that Victoria Park doesn't get sort of built on, but I also have never lived in Collingwood and wasn't really around um, going to games when they were playing matches there. But I suppose as a fan, you do hope that these areas are, are preserved and there's some recognition of of the history they hold. You know, and it's. I mean, the Windy Hill thing is such a such an interesting example of of how um, you know an attempt to kind of preserve a part of Melbourne's football history. Um, and also, you know, uh, turn a profit yeah. on the thing, <laughs> and and you know, and to kind of recognise uh, what many see as cultural relevance. Yeah, it's you know, there's 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 so much to look at in that in that whole um, that whole scenario, and it is very, uh, you know, it's a kind of a cultural thing. It is also to a certain degree, uh, you know, an urban historical. Uh, phenomena that, as you say, I don't think it really happens that much in other cities uh, around the world. And I think that in part is due to the way that we in Melbourne distinguish ourselves from the biggest city mm. in Australia. And, you know, we may not be quite the biggest, you know, maybe tomorrow we will be because we're expanding <laughs> at a rate of knots, but um, we're not quite the biggest city in Australia, but we, uh, we're not that we weren't the first city in Australia, but we've got this one thing that that really well we've got a few but we've got this thing that really separates us from the other city so in that sense it's kind of a it's a whole of melbourne um you know way of thinking mm. about what's important about melbourne and I, i've got to say dylan i mean i know you're a you're a fan and so on and you know i think in some ways if you if you're going to pin your whole um notion of what's different about your city to a football code, then I mean, I actually think that's sort of sad. But, <laughs> but it, you can extrapolate from that in various ways, and some people do it, um, have done so very creatively and and in very interesting ways. So you know, and I respect that. Absolutely, we'll go pies. Uh, it, I don't know what that means, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> Always enlightening, Dave. Um, thanks for coming in. We'll catch you again in a month's time. Thanks, Dylan. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.